Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Mark 6 now. So if you've got uh, your Bible open there, that would be really helpful. But as we do, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you most of all for your word made flesh, the Lord Jesus. And as we think together about these incidents in his life, we pray, Lord God, that you would be opening uh, our hearts to receive it so that we might be shaped by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Things were really different for our Olympic athletes arriving home from Tokyo this year. In the past, like from Rio, there were ticker tape parades, there were speeches of congratulations, there was showing off of medals. Uh, but with COVID restrictions, such celebrations were put on hold. The athletes arrived quietly and were immediately put into two weeks quarantine where they had limited movement and no accolades. Some who quarantined in Sydney and then went to South Australia had to do another 14 days in isolation when they got there. Hardly an arrival full of honour. It reminded me of an earlier group of Australians arriving home to a very muted welcome. The soldiers who served in the Vietnam War. Uh, The war that they happened to serve in, most of them conscripted, was very controversial back at home. Protests against the war were growing and no one really knew what to do about the returning soldiers. Their arrival home was not honoured at the time, not until years of reflection later. But, you know, there was another arrival home that was not just muted, not just ambivalent, but was clearly dishonoured. And that was the arrival of Jesus to his hometown, Nazareth, as recorded for us in Mark 6. Much more than soldiers who had served their country or athletes who had performed well, Jesus was worthy of honour. I mean, over recent weeks, we have heard of the many people flocking to him, so many that he had to get in a boat offshore to be able to preach to them. And we've heard of him calming the storm on the lake with a word of rebuking evil spirits and sending them into a herd of suicidal pigs, of a woman being healed by just touching his cloak, of a little girl being brought back to life. Wow, if anyone deserved a raucous return home, it was Jesus. But that's not what we find in Mark 6. No, what we find sandwiched between accounts of those miracles and then later in chapter 6, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on water to catch up with his disciples, what we find sandwiched between all those miracles is Jesus not honoured. For on his return to Nazareth, he experienced rejection. And then as he sends the 12 out on mission, he prepares them to expect rejection. And in a meanwhile, back at the ranch moment, we hear how his forerunner, John the Baptist, was not only rejected, but executed at the hand of Herod. And I think sometimes when we know just how good the good news of Jesus is, when we recognise Jesus as Lord over the chaos, over evil, over sickness and death, as we saw so clearly last week, when we know just how good it is to follow Jesus, We kind of expect people to love us for it, to honour those who honour the Lord, to say with Isaiah how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. But so often that's very much not the case. So often we find ourselves dishonoured because of Jesus, whether at home with our family or close friends, on mission somewhere out in the world, or even by the authorities over us because they think that they know us too well or because of ignorance and perhaps fear of the unknown or because of the threat 
that the gospel poses to each person's own little kingdom of one. So I think God put this section in his word very much to prepare us and to aid us as we experience the reality of being followers of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Well, let's consider the dishonoured king today as we prepare to be dishonoured for his sake. Before we plunge into chapter 6, though, I want you to just take a moment to remember the high of last week, the calming of the storm, the casting of legion evil spirits into the pigs, the healing of the woman who had been sick for so long with just a touch, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Uh, This is a moment where we can have seen proof of Jesus' power, where we've witnessed the reality of his deity, when we can see he really is God's king, God's son. And so Jesus and his disciples then head away from the Sea of Galilee, around which all these miracles have taken place, over to the west, over to, to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And we read that back there, When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. Now, Mark doesn't tell us any details about what he preached, though you can read in Luke 4 that he read from Isaiah 61 and proclaimed that that prophecy of the Messiah was being fulfilled in their presence. But what Mark does record is the amazement of the many who heard him. Verse 2, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? They're amazed, but they're not convinced. They're not honouring him. No, they continue their questions in verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? We know this guy. We grew. He grew up here. He's just a tradesman like his dad was. Uh, who's, who's he trying to kid? We know his mum. We can name his brothers. His sisters are here with us. He's just an ordinary bloke like us. And they took offence at him, Mark concludes. The problem is familiarity. They think they know who Jesus is. They want to limit him to the hometown boy they knew. They aren't ready to accept that he might be more than a carpenter. Uh, As the English proverb says, familiarity breeds contempt. Though Jesus quotes a saying more well known back then, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. The result is, as Mark puts it in verse 5, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, that doesn't mean that he had no power to perform miracles, that, that there was, he was somehow weaker here than he had been in Gerasenes or Capernaum. Uh, no, it wasn't that he was unable. It was that he was restrained by the circumstances. As the commentator William Lane puts it, the performance of miracles in the absence of faith could have resulted only in aggravation of human guilt and the hardening of men's hearts against God. Unbelief excluded the people of Nazareth from the dynamic disclosure of God's grace that others had experienced. They missed out in seeing God's authority in Jesus because they were not ready to receive such a revelation. 
And Jesus was amazed or wondered at their lack of faith and went on from there to preach in other villages. I wonder, have you ever noticed how the home crowd is the hardest? I mean, it's those we're closest to uh, who are so often the hardest to reach for Jesus. If you come from a family that don't know Jesus, it can be so hard to have gospel conversations with them or the friends that you grew up with. They, they know you too well or they think they do. Uh, they, they, they keep you in the box that you may have made for yourself before you were a follower of Jesus. And it's so hard to break out of that. Familiarity does indeed breed contempt at times and you find yourself like a prophet dishonoured in his hometown. Well, that's nothing new. When we find ourselves dishonoured because of Jesus, whatever the situation, we are following in his footsteps. And indeed, that is what he prepares his followers to do. In verse 7, he calls the 12, the apostles that he had appointed from among his disciples, and he sends them out in pairs with authority to do what Jesus has been doing, casting out evil spirits and healing the sick. And he gives them instructions from verse 8, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Now, it's clear that the task that he's calling them to is not an easy one. They will need to depend on God and the kindness of strangers. It will require faith. I'm sure the 12 learned a lot about depending on God in prayer on that mission. But particularly in verse 11, Jesus prepares them to be rejected as he has just been. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. While some will show them hospitality, as verse 10 makes clear, they are to expect that others will not receive them, will not be ready to hear the good news, will reject them, will dishonour them as they dishonoured Jesus. And so just as Jesus rejected in Nazareth, left there to preach in other villages, so his disciples are called to walk away from rejection, to not be overwhelmed by it. To, to leave there shaking the dust off their feet, to, in a sense to pronounce judgment on their disbelief. And notice the rejection here is clearly not from familiarity. They're not in their hometown. They're among strangers, people who won't even receive them or give them a listening ear. So familiarity is, is not the reason this time that the gospel is rejected. In this case, it seems to be more like the opposite. It's the very lack of familiarity. It's possibly the fear of the unknown. Talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I don't want to hear this new thing. I don't want the familiarity being threatened. Go away. But uh, please note, though the 12 undoubtedly experienced some rejection on their mission as Jesus had told them that they would, it's, that's not what Mark reports in verses 12 and 13. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. You see, even with rejection, they had some sort of success. Like the, the parable of the sower and the soils, remember that? Some fell on the, uh, on the path, some on the rocks, some amongst thorns. But that which fell on the good soil had a bumper harvest, 30, 60, 100 fold. Folks, 
when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, when we, uh, like the 12, go out in his name, we can expect rejection. There will be times we need to walk away, shake the dust off our feet, which isn't to say we should easily give up. Uh, No, many times we need to persist for some time, graciously, gently yet boldly, most of all prayerfully, before we gain a listening ear. This will always be the case with those who we're closest to. We're not going to easily give up on them. But there are times with others when we just need to leave it to God and walk away. And when we do, we can know that even though some reject, yet God is at work building his kingdom. There will be a harvest. And by God's grace, he allows us to be part of that mission. And now getting back to the story, Jesus and the 12 are clearly making a mark. Whether people receive them or reject them, they are clearly a talking point, a talking point that even reaches the royal court of Herod. Who is this man? That's the question that they're asking. The the miraculous powers displayed by Jesus uh, haven't gone unnoticed. There's something going on. Who is this man? Uh, Some we see in verse 14 are saying he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some think he's uh, Elijah, who Malachi predicted would come before the Messiah. Uh, Some say he's a prophet like those of old. Interestingly, though, no one seems to be saying that he might be the Messiah. In Mark's account, that realisation waits until Peter identifies him as such in chapter 8. But anyway, he's the talk of the town. And it particularly strikes a chord in Herod, a chord of fear and a guilty conscience. The idea that Jesus could be John the Baptist raised from the dead resonates with Herod. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead, he cried. And so Mark pauses in the story of Jesus to take us back to what happened to John, to how John was rejected by Herod, or more by his wife Herodias, and how he was executed by order of Herod. As Mark recounts from verse 17, Herod had had John arrested and thrown in chains into prison. And why? He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Herod was in an incestuous, adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And John, being the prophet calling for repentance that he was, had called him out on it. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This earned John the intense hatred of Herodias. She seethed and was seeking any opportunity to have John killed. But Herod himself was much more cautious. Mark says in verse 20 that he feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. He clearly had some sort of respect for John. He liked to listen to him, it says, though he was perplexed or puzzled rather than won over by John's words. And then as John lingered in jail, Herodias finally got the opportunity she was looking for. Herod had a birthday banquet for himself, inviting all the A-listers of Galilee, the high officials, the military commanders, the leading men. And Herodias's daughter, whom we know from elsewhere was called Salome, performed a sensual dance for Herod and his guests. This dance pleased Herod. And he obviously, he could obviously see it pleased his guests as well. 
In the enthusiasm of the moment, he said to Salome, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. Indeed, he made it a bold oath, witnessed by all the guests. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Whoa, impetuous, foolish, but it was out there and Herodias seized on it. Uh, When Salome came to her mother for advice about what to ask for, she didn't hesitate. The head of John the Baptist And so the girl went to Herod, asking him to present to her John's head on a platter right now. Herod was distressed, but he was stuck. The whole room had witnessed his oath. So out of peer pressure, he gave the orders to have John beheaded and his head brought into the banquet. It's such a gruesome scene. Finishing with John's disciples coming to retrieve John's body for burial. And why was John rejected so? Not out of familiarity like Jesus in Nazareth, nor out of ignorance like the 12 on mission. But why? Well, lots of things come into it. Herodias's hatred, Herod's uh, impetuous oath, his cowardice in the face of peer pressure. But the bottom line is that John is a threat. Uh, he was calling for repentance. That's why Herodias hated him. And while Herod didn't want him dead, he still wanted him out of the way in prison and still didn't accept his call for repentance. He was puzzled, but not penitent. And so it was easy for the fear of of shame in front of his guests to overcome the fear of John as a righteous and holy man. So the basic answer to why John was rejected was sin and the threat of one who shined a light on it. He was rejected because the house of Herod was threatened, threatened by a call to repentance. Their sinful rebellion was threatened. Their desire to live life their own way without God was threatened. John was a threat. That's why he was executed. And you know, the vividness of Mark's account of John's demise is such that some suggest Mark is a story with two passion narratives. This being the first and the trial and crucifixion of Jesus II. Not that they're equal in weight by any means, but the significance is that the unjust killing of John points forward to the much more significant unjust killing of Jesus. This story is recounted here as a sort of portent of what is to come. For amidst the growing popularity of Jesus, his teaching and parables about the kingdom and and the many miraculous signs of his divine power, there has been growing opposition. We saw it especially in chapters 2 and 3, and now again here in chapter 6 it's on view. As Jesus is rejected at home because of familiarity, as his disciples are warned of rejection out of ignorance on their mission, and now we hear of how John was executed because of of the threat that he posed. It all, it's all going to come together in the story that Mark is telling when it comes to its climax in the trial, mocking, crucifixion and death of Jesus. Uh, the world will reject him. But in doing so, he will take the sin of the world with him to the cross. He who is without sin will become sin for us that we might be free of sin, that we might, by grace through faith, be welcomed into his kingdom. That's the nature of the kingdom Jesus brings. That's the nature of the king Jesus is. 
the dishonoured king. As Isaiah had earlier prophesied, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Dishonoured by sinful humanity in order to save us. And having so conquered sin and death, placed in the highest place of honour by his father. Risen and ascended to God's right hand. And one day every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus the honoured King. But the thing is, as we witness Jesus dishonoured in his hometown, as we hear of the expectation that his apostles would be rejected on their mission, as we encounter John's rejection and execution at Herod's hand, and as we follow that trajectory to the ultimate rejection of Jesus on the cross, well, we know what we can expect as his followers. It's commonly accepted that the most likely original audience for whom Mark wrote this gospel was the church in Rome facing increasing persecution. And it seems to me that the way Mark has structured his account is very much shaped to help his readers cope with dishonour, with rejection, even with outright persecution. And chapter 6 is very much a very significant part of that. Uh, And not only is it pointing forward to the climax of the story in the Passion of Christ, it's pointing past that as well to what we as followers of Jesus can expect. It's preparing us for the reality that Jesus will be dishonoured and we, his followers, will face rejection as he did. If we seek to share Jesus, some will dismiss us out of familiarity Some will ignore us because they're just not willing to face something so out of the familiar. And many will reject us because their sinful rebellion is threatened because they want to be their own boss and don't want to turn away from sin. But through all that, God will still be at work. Remember the good soil? Remember the mustard seed? Uh, We may be by some dishonoured for owning Jesus, but we are honoured by Jesus and he involves us in the growth of his kingdom. So above all, we need to remember the power of our king. Dishonoured by humans, but honoured by God. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we recognise you as the Lord of lords, the King of kings, who has come to us and been dishonoured by humanity, nailed to a cross and When you were nailed to that cross, you nailed with it all our sin, all our dishonouring of you. Lord, we we turn to you now. We we return to you now. We we repent of all the ways in which we dishonour you. And we ask you, Lord God, to so work in our hearts that we we would be strong and willing to stand for you no matter what is thrown at us. Lord, 
let us face dishonor in your name for your sake with honor, with, with gladness so that we can bring you glory. For in your name we pray. Amen.